0: Many of you have probably read Newsweek magazine, 2009 edition, a woman by the name of Lisa Miller wrote the following quote. You'll see it up on the screen. She said, many people have begun calling themselves followers of Jesus rather than Christians because that name is too often associated with stereotypes such as hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and a particular political party which they want to avoid, end quote. I think she 's right there 's a lot of baggage today associated with the name Christian, and so when people ask me what 's your religion I say i 'm a follower of Jesus. Now, you and I know that not everybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus is necessarily a follower, a disciple of Jesus. There are certain characteristics that should mark any disciple of Jesus Christ. To see that, turn if you will to second Corinthians chapter two and Again, we were going through the book of 2 Corinthians. For those of you who are visiting, we welcome you this morning. Thanks for being our guest. One of the things we do here at Calvary Chapel is we believe in the systematic teaching of God's Word. And so we just completed 1 Corinthians, working our way through the New Testament, and we find ourselves in chapter 2. John introduced this epistle last week. And let me just give you again a little bit of background of what's going on here in chapter 2 as well as chapter 1. If you remember, the Apostle Paul was attacked by the false teachers at Corinth. Paul started the church in Acts chapter 18, and shortly thereafter, false teachers came in like wolves, and they devoured the flock, and they were basically turning the Corinthians against Paul. They said Paul was not a legitimate apostle because he doesn't have letters of recommendation, he doesn't have a fancy resume. They said basically he's not a man of integrity because they told the Corinthians, you know, Paul doesn't love you. He, he wanted to make a visit, but he changed his plans just like that. He's fickle. He doesn't really care about you. In fact, that's the reason why he doesn't take support from you financially, is because he doesn't care about you. You could read about that in chapter 11. They also said uh, to the Corinthians that Paul was very unimpressive in his speech. They said his persona was lacking And so every which way they attack the Apostle Paul, and what Paul has to do in this personable letter is he has to defend his apostleship, and he has to defend his integrity. And so that's what he does in the midst of defending his integrity and his apostleship. What he does in chapter 2 is he gives us characteristics of a servant of God, a disciple of Christ, or a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me share these characteristics with you. Obviously, they're not exhaustive. You have to look at the whole New Testament to get a complete picture, but he gives us several of them. First of all, I would have you note that a disciple of Christ or a follower of Christ strives to maintain a balance between truth and love in relationships. Now, you and I know that having this balance of truth and love in relationships, especially when you're in the middle of conflict, is often a difficult thing to balance. Now, before I actually get into the text, Let me just give you a brief chart of how Paul set this up and what the Corinthians accused him of. You know, pictures speak a thousand words. If you look up here, the apostle Paul brought the gospel to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. That was his first visit. He planted the church in Satan's backyard, and many of the Corinthians who lived a debauched life came to Christ. Then Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. You say, yeah, it was 1 Corinthians. No, there was a letter prior to 1 Corinthians. We don't have this letter. He mentions it here in chapter 5, verse 9. He says, in my previous letter. Now, evidently, they misunderstood some of what Paul said. Well, a guy named Chloe comes to Corinth. He visits Paul, and he says, Paul, they misunderstood that letter you sent them. And plus, we're having problems in the church with division, sexual immorality, lawsuits, marriage, on and on and on. And so, Paul ends up penning 1 Corinthians to give them instructions. And then Paul wants to see how they're doing in response to that letter of 1 Corinthians. John went through that in detail. And so what Paul did was he paid a visit to the Corinthians. This would be his second visit. This was a painful visit because he had to confront a lot of their behavior. It was truth, but it was love. Well, he was going to plan a first, third visit right here in between, but he decides not to. He doesn't make the third visit till later on. And it's this third visit right here that he didn't show up. The false teacher said, see, Paul, he's fickle. The reason why he doesn't come to Corinth is because he doesn't love you. Well, that wasn't true, so Paul decided not to visit them a third time, because he didn't want to experience the pain of acrimony in their relationship. He had previously confronted them when he visited them, and he sort of wanted to give them their space. You and I do this in relationships. You know, you get in a heated battle with your spouse, what happens? If you try to resolve it too quickly, you end up having more conflict, so you want to give the person space. Well, instead of visiting them a third time, he ends up writing them what he called a severe letter or a painful letter. He mentions that in 2 Corinthians 2 4. He writes them a letter and he said he wrote it with much tears. It was very, very painful. And then finally he writes 2 Corinthians and then he visits them a third time. And so that's the backdrop of the passage that we're going to look at here. Now, in order to get the context, we've got to go back to chapter one real quickly, beginning at verse 23, because chapter divisions sometimes are misleading. We think it means a new subject, and that's not always the case. He says in verse 23 of chapter one, you'll notice it on the screen. But I call God as witness to my soul. In other words, He's kind of swearing an oath to show the seriousness of what he's about to say. He says, the reason I didn't come to you, it was that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Notice here he's exercising truth and he's exercising love. See, he already went to Corinth once and he gave him the truth. He rebuked him. But he didn't want to come a second time. Why? Because he was exhibiting love. So he's saying, look, the reason I didn't show up is not because I'm fickle, not because I'm not a man of integrity, it is because I wanted to spare you the rod of discipline. And by the way, when he uses this terminology, someone's going to say, well, Paul sounds like he's overbearing. It sounds like he's a parent trying to lord it over the Corinthians, and Paul denies that in verse 24. It's probably what the false teachers were saying. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, even though I've disciplined you, as a parent in a child relationship, he says, my goal is not to lord it over you. I don't want to control you. I don't want to dominate you. You see, Paul had a spirit of love, even though he preached the truth. He says, rather, we are workers with you for your joy in your faith as you are standing firm. He says, in other words, my goal is not to lord it over you. My goal is is to basically give you the truth, but I want to help you grow in your walk with God. And so, he continues in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, defending why he didn't show up. He says, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. You see, he didn't want to come back and pay that third visit right away, because he didn't want to get into the acrimony of the relationship. He wanted to give them their space. You see, there's that balance of truth and love. Verse 2, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? You see, Paul already confronted them with the truth, but he also says, I don't want to be sorrowful. And listen, none of us want relationships where there's constant friction. And Paul was human. He understood that. Verse 3. This, the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow for those who ought to make me rejoice. He says, that's the reason I wrote you a letter instead of visiting you personally. He says, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For he says in verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. In other words, he wrote to them, it was love He had to confront them with the truth. He says, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And so here's the point of this section. The Apostle Paul exhibits throughout this section the balance of love and truth. He gave them the truth. How? He visited the Corinthians. He had to confront their erring behavior. He wrote them a rebuke letter in 1 Corinthians. He also wrote them another letter, a sorrowful letter. That was the truth, but he didn't want to go back right away. He wanted to give them their space because Paul exhibited love. Paul wanted harmony in relationships. He didn't delight in conflict, but Paul seems to have this balance of love and truth. And This is an important principle for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. You and I exist in relationships. That's the way God designed us. We're made in the image of God, and God wired us to be related to other people. But relationships are very difficult. We have to balance love and truth in relationships. You have some personalities, they tend to bend to all truth. And you've met those people before, they're very stern. They, always say, they, they think their spiritual gift is to go around rebuking everybody. You ever met a person like that? But then you have some Christians that are all love. They exhibit love, which is a great quality, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if you have love, you have nothing, but they don't like to talk truth. And sometimes, in relationships, you have to deal with hard issues. You have to deal with truth, and sometimes it's very painful. And you see, if you have all truth and no love, what you have is legalism. And there's a lot of churches today in America, they preach the truth, they're right on, but there's a lack of love there. There's a lack of grace there. And people don't want to open up and share their struggles. Why? Because they're afraid of being judged. Maybe you came out of a church like that, and those churches do a lot of damage. On the other hand, we're seeing a generation of churches come up today that preach the banner of love, which is good, but what they're doing is they're denying the truth. And so what we want to do is we want to marry homosexuals because we want to reach the homosexual community and we want to extend the love of Christ, which we should extend the love of Christ, but not at the expense of truth. And if you read the letter of 2 John, John talks about that balance that the church must have between love and truth in a culture that is anti-God. And by the way, this gets down to the nitty-gritty in relationships for you and I. I mean, when we deal with our kids… There are times we have to rebuke them, we have to discipline them, we have to give them the truth, and there are other times that sometimes we don't need to say anything. We need to give them their space, we need to love them. How about in marriage? All of us who are married understand this balance of love and truth. Sometimes you get into conflict with your spouse and you got to speak the truth, but if we're not careful, we could speak the truth not in a spirit of love. Have you ever been in that situation before in your marriage or in a relationship where you basically spoke the truth very harshly and it did more damage? I have. In fact, one pastor made that mistake. The story says a pastor goes to the dentist for a set of false teeth. The first Sunday, after he gets his new teeth, he talks only for eight minutes in the pulpit. The second Sunday, he talks for about 10 minutes. The following Sunday, he talks for two hours and 48 minutes. Now, imagine if John or I talked for two hours and 48 minutes. Well, the congregation had to mob him to get him down from the pulpit, and they asked him, why are you so long-winded? The pastor explained, well, the first Sunday his gums hurt so badly he couldn't talk but for eight minutes. The second Sunday his gums hurt too much to talk for more than 10 minutes, but here is where he made a mistake. He said, but the third Sunday He says, I put my wife's teeth in by mistake, and I couldn't shut up. (laughs) That'll get you in hot water, won't it? (laughs) Now listen, if you have all truth, what you have is meanness. If you have all love, you have meaninglessness. And you see, you have to balance those two out when you deal with relationships, and we all have to work at that because we all tend to bend in one direction or the other, and that's what the church is called to do. Well, there's a second principle that Paul gives here for a disciple or a follower of Jesus, and that is they extend loving forgiveness to others. Disciples extend loving forgiveness to others. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. He says to the Corinthians, but if any has caused sorrow… He has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Now, we say, what is he talking about here? Well, evidently, he's bringing up a person in the Corinthian church that had caused the Corinthians grief. And there's two views as to who this person could be. View number one, it was one of the ringleaders in Corinth among those who was spreading gossip and slander, and they were basically assassinating Paul's character, And Paul is basically saying, you had to deal with that person. You had to confront them. The second view is he's dealing with the person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Corinthians were boasting about it? You see, they came out of a very immoral culture. And so they were high-fiving one another. Oh, you slept with your stepmom last night? Hey, man, high-five. And Paul is saying, you ought to be grieved you ought to be sorrowful. And he says, instead, you boast about it. And then Paul basically instructs the Corinthians to discipline that man and put him out of the fellowship. And by the way, that implies that the church still needs to practice church discipline today, not for every little sin, because none of us would be here. Obviously, for big egregious sins that hurts the testimony of the church. And so many commentators believe that Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it's that person who you had to deal with, and notice what he says in verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, you've already punished him, you've already disciplined him, and the implication is he repented. Look at verse 7, so that on the contrary you should rather, circle that word, forgive and comfort him, otherwise Such a one might be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. In other words, Paul says, you meted out the punishment, you've disciplined him. The implication is, whoever it was, they repented. What I want you to do now is affirm your love for them, and I want you to extend forgiveness to them. Why does he say that? Well, notice what he says in verse 8. Wherefore, I urge you to affirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Remember he said in 1 Corinthians, if it was the man living in immorality, Paul told him to disfellowship the guy. And he says, I wrote you that to test your obedience. Obviously, they obeyed Paul and they did it. But Paul is saying, look, you've already done it enough. If you're too excessive, this man's going to be overwhelmed with sorrow. And by the way, again, this is a balance of truth and love. And so he says in verse 10, but one whom you forgive, there's that word forgive again, Anything I forgive also, there it is a third time. For indeed, what I have forgiven, there it is a fourth time. If I have forgiven anything, there is a fifth time. I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And so, here's the principle that Paul is telling the Corinthians I want you to forgive that brother, whoever it was, whatever he did. We can't be dogmatic. The bottom line is, he says, I want you to forgive that person. He uses the word forgiveness five times. And so, one of the marks of a disciple. Is they extend forgiveness to other people. Now, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have someone to forgive. And listen, the harder you've been hurt, the more deep the cut, the harder it is to forgive the person. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that we're to forgive minor offenses. You know, some Christians wear their feelings on their sleeve and they always get offended at little things. If you're in a marriage, you gotta to learn to have thick skin because if you wear your feelings on your sleeve all the time, you're gonna be in constant acrimony in your marriage. And so the Bible says that we are to forgive minor offenses. Listen to what Proverbs nineteen eleven says. We all understand this. A person yields, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. You gotta overlook things in your marriage. You've got to overlook things in the church. You gotta avoid being petty. On the other hand, when it comes to major offenses, something that you cannot let go of, it gets in your craw. Now, I realize what may offend one person may not offend another person, but if it gets in your craw, the Bible says you need to forgive, and sometimes you need to go to that person and you need to work it out. You say, well, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness implies an offense. Forgiveness implies that someone has hurt us. Forgiveness implies that I've been wronged. But I like this definition of forgiveness that someone gave, quote, forgiveness is a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance towards a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness, end quote. That's a great quote on what forgiveness is. It's a choice. In fact, someone gave word pictures of forgiveness. I think they're very helpful, To forgive is to turn the key and open the cell door and let the prisoner free. To forgive is to write in large letters across the debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare the person not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be retrieved. To forgive is to take out the garbage and dispose of it, leaving the house fresh and clean. To forgive is to loose the anchor and set the ship free to sail. And then finally, to forgive is to grant a full pardon to a condemned and sentenced criminal. I think Corrie Ten Boom illustrates this. As you know, she was in the Nazi Germany concentration camps. She wrote the book uh, Hiding Place, and she watched her sister die in the concentration camps. And when the war was over, she was in Germany preaching in this basement. She was sharing with the German people who were very stoic, how God will forgive your sins and He'll bury them in the sea of forgetfulness. Well, when the service concluded, people got up and began to walk out. And then she said, it's as if time stopped. She said, I noticed this gentleman walking towards me. And she said, I recognized him as one of the guards that presided over me and my sister when we were in the concentration camps. And she said immediately, she had that uneasy feeling in her heart. And the man walked up to her and said, what you say is the truth. God has forgiven me of my sins. Now, he didn't know who she was. And so, he reached out his hand to her to shake it. And here is what she said. And I'm going to quote her. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But you've got to supply the feeling. And so, woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing, she said, took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. She said, I forgive you, brother. I cried with all of my heart, end quote. See, forgiveness is not always easy, and there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to forgiveness. Let me share them with you real quickly. I wish I had time to do a whole sermon on this. Forgiving others does not always mean the elimination of consequences. People think if you forgive, it eliminates consequences. Listen, if somebody murders a family member, you may forgive them for that murder, but they're still going to pay for their crime in jail. Forgiving others does not always mean reconciliation. Your spouse may cheat on you and you may forgive them, but you may not necessarily reconcile. You see, forgiveness is dependent upon me, whereas reconciliation is dependent upon us. Thirdly, forgiving others does not always mean forgetting. If you've been raped, you will never forget that experience. But you know what? You can choose to forgive that person. Forgiving others does not always mean a feeling. Jesus said we're to love our enemies. Listen, that's not always a feeling. Many times it's a choice, and you know what? Sometimes it's a daily choice. When all those bad memories get recycled in my mind, I have to choose to forgive that person over and over again. It's an initial act, but it is an ongoing choice that I commit. And then finally, forgiving others is not contingent upon the other person's repentance. Well, I can't forgive them unless they repent. Listen. When Jesus was on the cross, what did He say to all the people there that were mocking Him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they what, what? they do. You see, forgiveness is an attitude that we are to have. And listen, sometimes it's a titanic struggle to forgive somebody who has hurt us deeply. And so followers are disciples of Christ. They balance love and truth. They extend forgiveness to others. Thirdly, I would have you note, they are alert to the attacks of Satan. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. But whom you forgive anything, he says, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now he says, look, I want you to forgive. And he says, I have forgiven that person as well. Why? He says it in verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by who? Satan, for we are not ignorant of his what? Schemes. And so Paul here introduces us to a third point. He basically says that as Christians, we are engaged in a battle. And we often forget that. Now, the context here is dealing with unforgiveness. When you and I choose not to forgive, Ephesians chapter 4 says that we give the devil a foothold. The word there is tapas, it means topography. What we do is we give Satan a plot of ground, we give him a beachhead from which to launch his attacks. But listen, it goes beyond just unforgiveness. Paul is introducing a general principle that you and I are in a warfare, not only against the world, not only against the flesh, but we have a personal enemy that is opposed to us. The Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And listen, if you're a Christian here this morning and you're saved… All Satan's going to do is change his tactics, because the Bible says he blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but if you're a Christian already, he can't touch your soul, but what he's going to do is he's going to change his tactics, because Satan is a tactician. Satan is a schemer. And I don't believe in looking for a demon behind every bush. Some Christians are so into spiritual warfare, they look for a demon behind every bush. Well, your car just conked out, there must be a demon in the engine. No, no. On the other hand, if you talk about Satan or spiritual warfare in some churches, they'll put you out of the church because they don't like the topic. And you see, we have to have a balance. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ultimately, Washington is not our enemy. The Bible says there are territorial spirits in Daniel chapter 10 that are over regions, and we wrestle against strong demonic spirits that come against us as Christians. And you know what? Satan is very subtle. Sometimes he uses the frontal approach, and sometimes he uses the side approach or the rear approach. He's very, very subtle. You ever had this happen? Look up on the screen. You ever been driving and there's a cop car hiding? You ever had that unpleasant experience where you're driving, and then you turn the corner, and then you slow down as if they didn't know what your speed was a couple miles earlier? I think that radar can detect it. It happened to me yesterday. I took a friend to Charleston, and as I was driving, the Chevy, white one, it was suburban. It pulled up next to me, had no marks of a cop car. So I kept going, and then all of a sudden, the lights went on. And you know how your heart sinks? And you say, oh, Lord. And you know, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, you shouldn't have been speeding to begin with. And you know what? They hide because they want to pounce on you like a roaring lion. And sometimes the cars are very much disguised. You don't even know. And see, there is method to the madness of the police officers. Why? Because if they can disguise what they look like, they're going to catch more people and give them tickets. Well, that's exactly what Satan does. The Bible says he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I was reading about a guy in Northern California in his mid-60s. He did a hike. And this is a true story. It happened several years ago. While he was hiking, he came across a big bear with its cubs, now, from what I've read, if you come across a bear, obviously they can outrun you, and especially if they're around their cubs, that creates problems because they get very, very defensive. And so he decided to quietly move along, and he had a backpack on. And then he said, all of a sudden, he said a mountain lion jumped out. He, he believes that the mountain lion was intending to get the cubs. But when he saw this man, the mountain lion jumped out, and he latched onto his backpack. He pulled out his rock pick, and he was trying to get the lion off when he said all of a sudden the mother bear grabbed or jumped on the mountain lion, pulled it off him, and those two began to wrestle, and he said he took off. (laughs) Now listen, that's exactly what Satan does. You say, yeah, but Mike, he doesn't do that in a major way in my life. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good person. And you may be right. You may not be out drinking and getting drunk and living in immorality. But let me tell you the subtlety that Satan works in the American church lukewarmness, being a Sunday Christian only, not wanting to get involved, just wanting to come to church and go out and say, Pastor, great sermon. You see, Satan doesn't have to use a lot of big methods in the American church, because if he can lull the American church to sleep, you know what? He's got us, because the most ineffective church is a lukewarm church. That's why Jesus said, you're neither hot nor cold, and he says, because you're lukewarm, he says, you nauseate me, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And what that means is not that you're going to lose your salvation, but it simply means that it makes Jesus sick when the church is lukewarm. So you see the subtlety there? We're not in the Word. We're not in prayer. And listen, we're not in a legalistic relationship. Oh, I missed my quiet time today. God's mad at me. Not at all. We're under the canopy of God's grace. We don't operate in a legalistic relationship, but at the same time, we have to cultivate a relationship with God. And if Satan can keep you out of the Word and out of prayer, listen, you are a sunk duck. And so, if you and I are going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we've got to use our spiritual weapons. Now, you say, well, what are the weapons? Well, notice this picture here. When Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God, Paul was probably looking at Roman soldiers, and the Holy Spirit gave him truth as it relates to each piece of armor. And I'll show you the next slide here. You'll notice here, he says, put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truthfulness is a better translation of the Greek, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and uh, feet protected by the gospel. Now, what does this translate for you and I? How are these things our weapons if we're going to defeat Satan? Here's how. Here's how it breaks down. He says, you got to depend on the Spirit in Ephesians 6. He says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His what? Might. We face a supernatural enemy. We need supernatural strength. Are you a Spirit-filled Christian? If you're not, you're not going to defeat Satan. Secondly, be genuine, be committed. He says, put on the belt of truthfulness in verse 14. That means live a life of truthfulness without hypocrisy. Be committed. Because listen, you're not going to fight the battle successfully If you're a wishy washy Christian and you're not all in, then he says, Live a righteous life. That's the breastplate of righteousness. This is practical righteousness. Deal with sin in your life. That's how you defeat the enemy. Then he says, Preach the gospel. Put on your gospel shoes. That's our offensive method, our our offensive weapon. You and I, when we preach the gospel, you know what we do? We're cutting a swath in Satan's kingdom. Why? When people accept Christ, they get delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He says, trust God. Put on the shield of faith. Satan will always fire his darts of doubt at you. I have to wrestle with doubt at times. And listen, when you suffer, you tend to doubt God more. And so we got to hold up that shield of faith. And then he says, live in the hope of heaven, the return of Christ. That's the helmet of the hope of salvation. Why? Because listen, when the battle gets hot, when the battle gets thick and we want to throw in the towel, you know what gives us hope to persevere? The Bible says our future hope in heaven, the return of Christ. That's what helps us to say, Lord, I'm not going to quit fighting this battle. And then he says, no one quote the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, verse 17, just like Jesus did in Matthew 4. And then this is often left out of the armor, but in verses 18 through 20, what does Paul do? He talks about prayer. Listen, Satan hates it when the church prays. That's why the church in America doesn't pray. That's why we don't want to pray. Because listen, we have everything we need. We are self-sufficient. And so we're not into corporate prayer. Listen, if I told you, uh, next week we're going to have steak and eggs. It's going to be free, and we're going to have all these goods and giveaways. I guarantee you we'd have 500 people out. If I said, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting for an hour, and we're going to intercede for our country and this nation, how many people do you think would show up? 510? Five, Five, and listen, I'm speaking to myself here. Again, truth and love. I love you, but I got to speak to the truth to you. We have prayer, we need to be a praying church. So this is the armor right here, people. This is what defeats Satan. It's not some just nice image, well, put on the armor of God. It's living this way that actually defeats the enemy. And so, if you and I are gonna be disciples of Christ, we must balance truth and love. We must extend forgiveness to others, and we must be alert to the attacks of Satan. Well, there's a fourth principle that you and I must engage in if we're gonna be disciples of Christ, and that is we must take advantage of ministry opportunities. Notice, if you will, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. He says, Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and again, underline this phrase here, when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Now, doors in the Bible often refer to opportunities. We often use that today, a closed door, an open door. He says, I had no rest, verse 13, in my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. Now, again, let me show you a map and let me explain what was going on here. Paul was in Ephesus here when he wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and you remember he was going to go visit the Corinthians over here. Here's where Corinth is right here. Remember he decided not to visit them a third time, but he wrote them a what? A painful letter. We don't have that letter. It's not in the Bible. It's not 1 Corinthians. It's a painful letter. Well, he wrote it, and he's anxious to find out what's going on with the Corinthians. Now, who did he send the letter to or with? Well, he couldn't email it, so he sent it through Titus. And Titus was supposed to meet him here in Troas. And when he got to Troas, Paul realized, man, I got an open door for ministry. Look at all the opportunities for me to preach the gospel. And no doubt, he probably preached, he ministered, he did what God called him to do for a time. But when the last boat came in, and Titus was not on that boat, and Titus did not meet him in Troas to give him a report about that letter… Paul began to become anxious. You could read about this in 2 Corinthians 7. He started to get worried. He started to fret. He even says he was depressed. Yes, the Apostle Paul struggled just like you and I. So he says, I gave up my ministry opportunity here. I didn't stay as long as I wanted. And I ended up going to Macedonia. And I finally met uh, Titus over here. And he says in chapter 7, I was stoked He says, when Titus gave me a good report that you Corinthians have repented and on and on and on, he says, I was excited. But here's the point. Paul talks about ministry opportunity in Troas. And so here's a principle for a disciple of Jesus Christ is they take advantage of ministry opportunity. Do you realize that we are blessed in this country, the opportunities that we have? Do you realize the opportunity you and I have now to serve God? The Bible says make the most of your time, it's not talking about clock time there, it's talking about opportunities. He's saying, make the most of the opportunities, Ephesians 5. Why? Because the days are evil. Buy back the time. In other words, we only get one shot to serve God. Now is the time to give. Now is the time to serve. Now is the time to preach the gospel. Now is the time to use the gifts that God has given you. Why? Because listen, we all have a window of time. And you know what God is gonna evaluate when you die? He's gonna evaluate that hyphen on your tombstone. The day you were born, the day you die, God is gonna evaluate that hyphen. And listen, the Bible says to make the most of the opportunity, why? Because this is not a dress rehearsal. We get one shot to serve God. I was talking to my daughter the other day. We were out to lunch and I said, you know, one of the regrets that I have in life, and all of us do when we look back at our life, we wish we could do things differently, I said, one of my regrets was that I didn't listen in high school and I didn't study. I love to learn. I love to read now. And I didn't have that mentality back in high school. I wasn't mature enough. And I wish I could go back right now and take advantage of that opportunity to be able to learn and to be able to grow. Listen, we're all going to have regrets when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, before the judgment seat of Christ, not for hell. Because our sins have already been judged. But I think we're all going to have tears of the opportunities that God gave us that we squandered. Why? Because of material things. Nothing wrong with material things. Nothing wrong with enjoying what life has to offer. But when those things distract us from doing the work of God and seeking first the kingdom of God, that's when we got a problem. And listen, we all have to fight that. A friend of mine who's a pastor said, He was heading home one night after ministry, and he drove by this nursing home, and the Lord spoke to him and said, you need to stop by and see so-and-so. And he said, Lord, I'm too tired. I don't want to go in there. I'll see him tomorrow. So he went by the next day, and when he went, he found out the gentleman passed that night. You see, opportunity. We've all had opportunity. So if you're a disciple of Christ, I want to encourage you, get involved here. God has a gift. He's given it to you. Use it for His honor and your glory. Listen, God doesn't want Christians to sit, soak, and sour. He wants you to be involved serving Him with the gifts that He's given you. Well, there's one final principle of a disciple of Christ. And that is they share the gospel through their words and their life. This is a recurring theme in Paul's epistles. Notice, if you will, verses 14 through 16. I love this verse. It's a verse of triumph. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And notice the evangelism here. He manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. That's evangelism. The gospel is like a fragrance, spiritual Fabergé. Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we're the aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And then he says this, who's adequate for these things? Now, I remember, I don't follow the NBA, but I grew up in South Florida. And when Miami was in the series years ago, I'm a LeBron fan. I think he's one of the best players of our generation. I didn't say the best. Michael Jordan is probably the best. But anyway, I was in Vermont in a hotel, Laura and I were up there exploring the Northeast and they were playing the championship game. They won it that year. And then when he got back to Miami, here's what happened. Noah, you sleeping? There you go. Here it is. Here's the victory parade right here. They're coming through. Go to the next slide. You'll notice here they're coming in, and it's kind of a triumphal procession, except they have modern technology buses, but they're coming in and everybody's cheering them on. Well, this is the background behind this passage that I just read. If you'll notice the picture, you will notice here that Rome, whenever they would conquer another territory and they would win, what they would do is they'd bring captives of war back from uh, the land that they had conquered, and they would come into Rome in this triumphal procession. You would have the general in his uh, chariot with his steeds in front of them. You would have the prisoners of war behind them. And then you would have priests. And here's what the priests would do. They would have incense. And the incense would go up to the gods. And the prisoners would smell that incense. And to them, that was the smell of what? Death. Because they were getting ready to go to the arena and fight to their death. To those who were victorious, when they smelled the incense that symbolized what? Life. And Paul uses this as an analogy, and he says this, you and I are in God's army. We are triumphant. Jesus is our general. He leads us in triumph. We are the conquerors, but we also are the conquered ones because Jesus, we're in his army, and he leads us and uses us to spread the fragrance of the gospel. And so here's the question, what kind of fragrance are you? Now, you're either one of two things. Either you're a Febreze Christian or you are a Raid Christian. Now, I don't know about you. I've used Febreze before on the couch. It actually smells pretty good. I'm like, hey, I spray… No, I'm just kidding. And then you've all had the unpleasant task of spraying what? Raid. Raid stinks. And you know what? There are some Christians that are Febreze Christians through their life Through their words, they're not perfect. They speak the gospel to other people. And then you have some Christians that are raid Christians. They give a bad testimony of the name of Christ. But then you have some Christians, look at this slide, I encountered this. These are odorless Christians. You know there's a raid that's odorless? It has no smell to it. And I thought, isn't that true in the church today? We have some that spread the fragrance of Christ, and then we have some that detract from it because of their life. They're giving a black eye to the cause of Christ. And then you have some Christians, they're odorless. They just show up to church. They're not living immoral lives. They're good people, but you know what? They are odorless. They're not making an impact for the kingdom. So what kind of Christian are you? Are you a Febreze Christian? Or are you a raid Christian? And you know what? Sometimes that's a struggle. I've shared with some of you, when I got here, I I had a Toyota Tacoma, and I traded in my lease, and I wanted to get a Chevy Colorado, and I bought it at this particular dealership. I won't tell you the name of it. And uh, I went to this dealership, and uh, I swapped it out, and everything was good. And about two days into my 2018 truck, I noticed a funny noise. I said, something's right. I'm not a mechanic, but I know when something's off. So I went back in and I said, look, uh, something's off of this truck. He said, all right. This is three days after I bought it. He said, we'll put it in the shop. I said, no, you won't. I said, you're going to buy it. You're, you're going to take it back and give me another one. He said, well, let me talk to the boss man. Came back. He said, yeah, that's fine. But it hadn't gone through to the bank. So we can do that. I said, good. So we got another one, different color. Three days into that one. I start hearing rattling in the dashboard, and I thought, you got to be kidding me. So I go back, and I say, look, i got this problem here. There's rattling in the seatbelt panels and in the dashboard. And I don't know about you. I can't stand repetitive noises. And so I take it back. They said, all right, we'll put it in the shop. Well, I couldn't argue with them at that point. Today has been one month. It's been in the shop. Now, you say, Mike, there are greater things in life than your truck. You're absolutely right. But I'll tell you what, in that month period, I've had to work hard at keeping my testimony. I've had to go there, and you know, you got to be firm, right? you got to balance truth and what? Love. So I've been firm, and when I got there, the guy in the service department, he said, you know, he goes, trucks make a lot of noise. He, he tried to pin it on me like it was my fault, and I looked at him very sternly, and I said, so what you're saying is GM makes bad products. And I just got really stern with him. And then I said, you know what? I said, dude, I'm sorry. I said, I apologize. I said, I, I shouldn't have gotten that angry. I didn't scream at him, but I just said, I, I'm sorry, forgive me. He was kind of looking at me. And, um, and so I've said, so now I'm trying to deal with how I'm going to handle this. Do I need to go into the lemon suit? Do I need to do this, that, or the other? It's a long story I don't want to bore you with, but here's the thing, I want to be the fragrance of Christ, because here's the deal, they know I'm a pastor. And so I'm living not just with a pastor, but being a Christian. I want to maintain my testimony, but at the same time, I don't want to be a doormat, because you pay money. And listen, that's exactly what we deal with as Christians in everyday life. We've got to watch the fragrance that we're giving out to other people. Yesterday, I was in Charleston, and uh, there was this guy it's two African-American guys. They were standing up on a stage at the corner, and they had a mic, and they were screaming out loud about the Bible, preaching. You could hear it everywhere. And basically what they were saying is, God hates white people. That was their message. So I'm listening to this. They got stuff up there. They're dressed. They're big. And they're screaming this stuff, and they're totally twisting the Bible. So later on, as we got closer, they were shopping. I said, y'all shop. I'm going to talk to this guy. And so I went over there, and as he's shouting, I said, what do you do with what the Bible says for God so loved the world? And so he took the Scripture and he twisted it. You really can't get any headway. Laura even said, she said, Mike, it's casting pearl before swine. And it is. But see, that gives a bad name to Christianity because it's misinformation. Now, as we close, as we present the gospel, what do we present? Well, there's a lot of different methods we use. We use the four Ps here. Here's a simple one, the ABCs of salvation. What is the ABCs? It's very simple to remember. Admit that you are a sinner, have made mistakes, or I don't like mistakes. Sin, you've sinned. Believe that Jesus is God's Son. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, and confess Him as the Lord of your life. That's very easy to remember. I went into a convenience store years ago, and I was trying to share Christ with this lady. And I said, well, ma'am, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? She said, because I know my ABCs. At the time, I never heard that before, and she gave me this, and I thought, wow, that's simple and it's reproducible. And by the way, if your style is not stranger evangelism, that's okay. Build relationships. Everyone's going to do it differently, but the key is be intentional about sharing with other people. Now, as we close, there's two things you got to be aware of real quickly. Depend upon the Spirit when you share. Notice what Paul says in verse 16. And who is adequate for these things? And what's the answer? None of us is adequate. We've got an enormous message. We have this message, Paul says in chapter 4, John will get to that, in jars of clay. See, he contrasts the glorious nature of the message with us. We are the containers. We are frail. We are weak. We are not adequate. But notice what he says in chapter 3. I love this of 2 Corinthians such confidence we have through Christ towards God not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves here it is but our adequacy is from who from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant you see ultimately it is God who has to give us the power to do what he's called us to do that is why it's so imperative that we are spirit-filled Christians so the first thing we must understand when we preach the gospel as a reminder is we have to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we have to speak the truth. He ends chapter 2 by saying, for we are not like many. We're not like the false teachers in Corinth, those false apostles. He says, peddling the Word of God, loss, corrupting, diluting. But as from sincerity, But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. In other words, we speak the truth, we don't water it down, we don't make it more palatable for our culture, we speak the truth undiluted, unashamedly, unreservedly, and unabashedly we preach the truth, but we do it in a spirit of love. You'll notice here on the screen as I end with this, I grew up in a house, my parents used fragrances all the time. That's what I got for Christmas all the time, fragrances, and so I grew up on them. My wife will tell you I got like four types I like using them. Well, one particular year it was about two years ago. My mother-in-law gave me fifty bucks for Christmas, so I said, "Well, I'm out of fragrances, so I like Fahrenheit." And so I got online and I found me Fahrenheit, and so I paid it on the credit card and then paid the credit card off. Well, about three weeks goes by, I don't have Fahrenheit. I'm like, "What's going on?" So I email him. I said, "Hey, dude, where's the cologne?" He said, well, we're sending it, and I get it. Number one, it was an imitation bottle. And I noticed that they had taken a sticker, and they kind of put it on there so it was off-centered. I go, it's wrong. Then I sprayed it. Laura, come here. This isn't Fahrenheit. It was diluted with water and oil. You know what they did? They corrupted it. They sold me an imitation, and they diluted it. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says not to do when it comes to preaching the gospel. We give the straightforward gospel, we give it in truth, but we do it in a spirit of love and grace towards the sinner. So, what are the characteristics of a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you a disciple of Christ or are you just a professor? He says, number one, they strive to maintain balance between truth and love in relationships. They extend loving forgiveness to others. They are alert to Satan's attacks. They take advantage of ministry opportunities and they preach the gospel through their life and words. And so, my prayer for you, John's prayer, is that all of us would be disciples of Christ. Are we going to do it perfectly? Absolutely not. We're going to blow it. And when you blow it, like I did with that guy, get it right. Get it right. And keep your walk with God. You see, if we're not in the word, we're not in prayer. We're not seeking the Lord. What happens is we just kind of drift into cultural Christianity. Let's pray. Father, thank You for reminding us of Your truth. Thank You for the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we learn so much in his dealings with the Corinthians. Things have not changed today. People then are the same way as people now. The issues they dealt with then are the issues that we deal with today. Lord, my prayer is that all of us would balance truth and love, and when we get out of balance, we would keep working on it. When we blow it, we would get it right. Help us, Lord, to forgive others, and if you're sitting here this morning and there's someone that God brought to your mind that maybe you need to extend forgiveness or go to them and say, hey, look, we need to sit down and talk I have a root of bitterness would you ask God to forgive you and would you forgive that person father I pray that we would put on the armor that we would resist the devil firm in our faith as James says And Father, help us at Calvary to take advantage of ministry opportunity, Lord. There's so many ministries here. There's so many opportunities to get involved. Help us, Lord, to buy back the time because the days are evil. And Lord, help us to spread the message. As you said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Help us, Lord God, to have a heart for the lost. Father, guide us and lead us this morning. And all God's people said... Amen. Let's...